0: Putting away money for retirement, since I'm not going to be doing this podcast forever. Sorry, I guess I could, but retirement is huge for me. I am deeply focused on it right now. And planning for my tax bills so I don't dread April every year. Taxes are a doozy, and it's always changing. How do you know what to do? Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you.
1: You got problems that you
0: ought to be concerned with, don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret, but you're not the only one. Keep your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun. Now your healing has begun. It's bad with money with Gabby Dunn. Hello, I'm Gabby Dunn, and this is Bad with Money. Are you happy? What would it take to make you happy? How much money would you need to have? In some cases, for Americans, as your salary increases, your happiness increases, obviously. But, unfortunately, at a certain point, the high level's off. Oh, money works. Believe me, money works. But once you have enough money to be comfortable, as people euphemistically put it, more money won't actually tangibly statistically make you happier. But but wait, that's, that's not the dream we're sold. Once you have one million, why not try to have two million or three million or 10 million or 30 million? Why not keep going until you're a billionaire? Surely there's no room for unhappiness when you're swimming in gold coins. You can just stuff dollar bills into the cracks in your life and ignore social connections or sleep or even loving your day-to-day work. Our guest this week is Dr. Lori Santos, a cognitive scientist and professor of psychology at Yale University. She is also the host of the podcast, The Happiness Lab. Lori is an expert on happiness. She teaches a class called The Science of Well-Being. So I absolutely had to have her on to break down not whether or not money buys happiness, but what areas of our lives require money to be happy and what areas do not, and why we often confuse the two. I'm not interested in studying a concept that low-income people know to be reality. I am interested in learning and conveying the truth about what gratitude and friends and mindfulness and blah, blah, blah can fix and what basic human needs have to be affordable or free before we can even use the word happy. (sighs) Look, this podcast does not deal in hypotheticals. I've heard from my listeners, from all of you, that too many financial shows try to convince you that money won't change your state of well-being. So let's go into this interview with that answered. Yes, yes, of course it does. Now, how do we deal with everything else? Plus, monkeys. Yes, you heard me right, monkeys. Keep your ear to the banana phone, folks. Stay tuned. Thank you so much for being here, Lori. Can you tell my audience who you are and what you do, although that is many things?
1: So I am a professor of psychology at Yale and also host of the Happiness Lab podcast. I teach a whole class about the science of well-being and do research on the science of happiness, trying to figure out what are empirically validated strategies that we can use to feel better in the context of all aspects of our life, but including how we make money, how we spend money, and so on.
0: Yes, that is a huge part of it. So how does money factor into a happy life?
1: Well, I think one of the first ways that money factors into a happy life is that we have some very strong intuitions about how money affects happiness that I think we need to Figure out if those intuitions are correct. Even though we've all heard money doesn't buy happiness, many of us have the sense that to be happier we need to get more money. That's how we pick our jobs. You know, that's how we sort of structure our lives. You know, I'm I'm here at Yale where so many of my students are, you know, studying incredibly hard so they can get a job with a high salary. And so that intuition is an incredibly strong one. And so we might want to ask if it's correct. And the answer about whether money affects happiness is yes and no. Money does buy happiness if you don't have any money. If you can't put food on the table, if you don't have a roof over your head, yes, definitely getting more money will make you happier. But the research also shows that, you know, if you're like bringing in a kind of standard middle class salary, money is probably not going to affect your happiness in the way you think. And we know this from a very famous paper from back in 2009. It was by two Nobel Prize winning economists, Danny Kahneman and Angus Deaton. And what they did was they looked at people across different salary levels and they measured three aspects of people's well-being, people's sense of positive emotion, like, you know, do you feel joy and laughter a lot, people's stress level, you know, so do you report feeling very stressed, and people's negative emotions, so things like anger, sadness, and so on. And what they plotted was like how those different measures of well-being increased or decreased at different salary levels. And what they find is that super low salaries in the U.S., so salaries like $20,000, $40,000, people do get happier as they get more money. So as your salary increases, all those measures of well-being are going up, right? You're getting happier based on those measures. But all the measures of well-being also level off. And in their data set back in 2009, the point at which those measures leveled off was around $75,000. What does that mean? That means if you're earning $75,000, even if I double or triple your salary, quadruple your salary, you're not going to get. And any more benefit in terms of those measures of well-being. Now, that's not what we predict, Mm -hmm. but it's what the research seems to show. And so I think to start with how does money affect happiness? I think money affects happiness because we think it's going to matter. And so we go after it and then it doesn't work sometimes. And then we think, oh, what's wrong? Oh, I must just need more money. And then we go after more money and it's still not working. And so I think that's the big thing we need to come to terms with is that our intuitions are wrong
0: yeah once you reach i mean at least in my experience, once you reach a level of not needing to think about it, then that stressor goes away, and whatever number it is that you don't have to think about it is dependent on the person
1: yeah, and I think they came up with this number of seventy five thousand dollars that was the average across the u s you know of course you know if you 're living somewhere you know where the standard of living is much higher, if you're trying to get an apartment in San Francisco that's going to be different than if you're trying to get a house in rural Iowa or something like that. But even with that variation, the research suggests it's it's just not the level that we think. I think that's the problem is when you don't have to think about it anymore, those stresses go away. But the salary level we think is the point at which we don't have to think about it. You know, we put that in the like, you know, you know, 10 million mm-hmm. category. It's actually much lower than we think.
0: So is it possible to achieve happiness without financial security?
1: Again, I think what the research shows is that there are lots of ways you can boost your well-being, but it is true that if you don't have any money, if you don't have financial security, again, if you're kind of under that 75K level, the research shows that getting more money will make you a little happier. I I think the thing to recognize, though, is that so will lots of other things. You know, so (laughs) will taking time for social connections. So will taking time to be present. So will increasing gratitude in your life. So will just getting more sleep. And so depending on your salary level, there might be a marginal effect of money on happiness, you still probably will get a bigger effect by focusing on other stuff. And sometimes when you focus on money, it's an, at an opportunity cost of the other stuff. I mean, I look at my Yale students who are so obsessed with grades, and they're giving up things that really will matter for their happiness, like their social connection, yeah. their sleep, and so on. And so I think if we're using money to go for happiness, we're often doing it the wrong way.
0: Yeah, that's sort of the thing that you talk about that's like getting caught in golden handcuffs, right? Feeling trapped in this
1: job you hate because it's paying a lot of money. Yeah. And I think this is one of the reasons I think that more money doesn't make us happy is that as we get more and more, you kind of need more and more. You know, now you're locked into a house Mm -hmm. that you have to be paying the mortgage on. Now you're locked into a job that you might hate, but the act of leaving that job means, you know, you're giving up salary and you can't afford your gym anymore or your yacht or whatever it is. (laughs) Right. And we also know that money comes with more problems. One of the coolest interviews I did was I interviewed this guy, Clay Cockrell. He's a psychologist to the incredibly wealthy, mm-hmm. a wealth psychologist, as he calls it. So his his clientele is only in the like 0.0001%. And first of all, he has clients, right? And their problems are really striking, right? Because they'll say things like, I feel worthless. I'm only at $500 million. If only I could become a billionaire, then I'd really be someone in life. Or their problems are like, oh, I don't have a place to park my yacht, right? Mm-hmm. You know, there, there was like the 90s biggie song of like, more money, more problems, mm-hmm. right? And I think Clay is seeing that. We have to realize and be honest with ourselves about, you know, the kinds of things that money really can help with and the kinds of spots where more money isn't going to do what we expect it to do for our well-being.
0: Yeah, I think the problem of where to park my yacht is different than the problem of I don't know that I'm going to be able to pay rent. So it's interesting. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, to me, when I didn't have any money, I was stressed out all the time and then now I really have to gain perspective in the sense that like I'm filling out a ton of tax forms and I'm upset. But like, that's different than (laughs) I don't know if I can do laundry ever again. (laughs)
1: Totally. And I think that's a couple of things that I think the science really suggests you can do to improve your well-being, right? One is the kind of technique you're almost mentioning, which is a technique that scholars call negative visualization. When you're filling out your tax forms, you're like, oh, this is really frustrating. A quick negative visualization of like, but how frustrated was I when I couldn't put a roof over my head? Right, You know, when I was worried the tax call are going to call all the time because I didn't have money to pay mm-hmm. them. Right. That negative visualization where you think about what life would be like without those resources can really make you appreciate them more. One insidious thing about the mind is that we get used to the good stuff we have, mm-hmm. you know, so that, you know, comfortable feeling you get when you have enough It goes away fast because you start worrying about the next thing. Now the tax forms are the thing that's stressing you out, not putting the food on the table. One is a bigger problem than the other. (laughs) But, you know, our minds don't notice it. And negative visualization can be a really important technique to Reap some gratitude for the things you have. We forget how privileged we can be. You know, if you do have the money to put food on the table, anyone who's listening who has money to put food on the table and a roof over your head, you are better than a decent percentage of the people on the planet who are not that lucky. And recognizing how lucky you are, being grateful for that is a powerful booster of well-being. You don't have to get more money. You just have to be grateful for what you have.
0: Yeah. So are we wired to be bad with money because we make so many mistakes. Personally, obviously, we like go into credit card debt. We do things we know are bad. And then in the macro level, we cause recessions and depressions why is this a thing that we just keep walking into
1: yeah I think part of it is that in so many ways our mind just has bad intuitions and it's not like we're trying to like be miserable we just kind of prioritize the wrong things we make lots of mistakes and and I think with money there are a bunch of mistakes we make so one mistake we make is that we think that the thing that will make us happiest is spending on ourselves ah. right and I think this is just part of the culture self-care treat yourself and, and I experience it too if i have a bad day I'm like, today's the day that I'm getting a nice meal or today's the day that I'm getting, you know, a manicure pre-COVID, you know, you and I are talking in the midst of this pandemic, spending is a little different, but we think spend on ourselves, self-care. But the research shows that you actually get more bang for your buck if you spend on other people than if you spend on yourself. One study walked up to people on the street, handed them some money and then told them how to spend it. This is work by Liz Dunn and her colleagues at the University of British Columbia. And she says, here's 20 bucks, either do something to treat yourself or here's 20 bucks, do something nice for somebody that you know or just some stranger on the street. And she calls people at the end of the day and she measures their happiness. And what she finds is that people who spend on others are are actually happier than people who spend on themselves. And this is borne out just by the correlational data. If you look at the amount of money people give to charity, controlled for income, people who give money to charity are happier than those that don't. Mm. People who spend not their money, but their time, you know, time is money. People who spend their time on others by volunteering and so on are happier than those that don't. So I think that's one way that money can buy happiness is if we don't spend it on ourselves. Another way that money can buy happiness is when we use it to buy back some time. You know, the research really shows that extreme monetary wealth doesn't make us happy, but time wealth really makes us happy. This is a concept that social scientists call time affluence, this idea that you just kind of feel affluent in terms of time. If you look at your like GCAL, it just has lots of time free. You have time for social events or just taking time off. Time affluence is the opposite of what many of us feel, which is what's called time famine, where we're literally starving for time. And I think that you know, this is another problem with monetary poverty is monetary poverty also makes you time poor. If you are struggling to put food on the table, you might be taking on all these odd jobs, jobs at weird hours, multiple jobs. One of the hypotheses that researchers like Ashley Willens, who's at Harvard Business School, has is a lot of the well-being hit that comes from being financially poor actually comes from being time poor. Mm -hmm. It's like the time poverty that's doing more of the hit. But the problem is, even if you have enough money to put food on the table, sometimes we don't realize the power of time. We could be spending our money to get back more time, even in like really simple ways, like hiring the neighbor's kid to mow the lawn Mm -hmm. or getting curbside pickup or takeout. The next time you get takeout, don't just think like, oh, yeah, I got takeout. This is great. Think Oh my gosh, I just saved X amount of hours mm-hmm. and like do the calculation. Like I got a burger and fries. That's a burger I didn't have to fry, potatoes I didn't need to chop, a grocery store I didn't need to go to, dishes I didn't need to clean. Mm-hmm. That's like 2.5 hours. Give it a temporal number. And the research shows that you'll be happier. And so that's a second spot we get it wrong, which is like we kill ourselves. We work. We don't take our vacation hours to get more money. But actually, more money is not going to make us happy. What would make us more happy is the thing we're giving up, getting a little bit more time.
0: Yeah. So in terms of systemic, I saw that you were talking about we create banks that are complicated. We create mortgages that are complicated. Why are we sabotaging ourselves (laughs)
1: I think, again, it gets back to the fact that our mind isn't designed all that well. Like, I mean, there's in a couple of different ways, right? One of the basic ways that our mind isn't designed well is that our brains don't necessarily track what is really going to feel rewarding. They track what is kind of motivating or what we crave. And and what I mean by that is that it turns out there are very few regions in the brain that code for pleasure. We have much more brain real estate devoted to what's called craving or motivation or what we seek out. And the sad thing is that those things aren't necessarily hooked up. You know, my favorite example of this is not in the monetary domain, but kind of in the like food domain, you know, so I'm like, you know, a sugar junkie. I'm trying to eat healthier. But if I see a cupcake, I want that cupcake. I crave it. I'm motivated to get it. If it's in the fridge, I'm like thinking about it. Right. But then when I finally eat it, you know, it's fine. Maybe it wasn't that great. Like it doesn't give me as much pleasure as I expect. And then, you know, there are things in my life that are reverse. You know, I don't tend to crave like in the way I crave a cupcake, a really good workout, or I don't tend to crave (laughs) like social time with my friends, or I don't crave a meditation session. But all of those things are going to really be rewarding if I get them. And so I think that's one of the big problems is there's this disconnect between what we want, what we crave and seek out, and what we like. And I think this leads to problems in the financial domain. You know, we crave some of our credit card debt is because people are not in a position to have the money they need for things. Right. You know, they put something on their credit card and they get stuck. But some of the credit card debt is just stuff we really think we want. Like, I really need that new iPhone. Or, oh my gosh, if I don't have these shoes, like, ah. and then you get them and you're like, OK, it was fine, but it wasn't what I thought. And so I think that understanding these biases can sometimes help us make better decisions.
0: So can we talk a bit about the monkeys and money experiment? So super fascinating.
1: Yeah. And so one of the things we were interested in, this is work that I was doing kind of before I started studying the science of happiness, is I was really interested in how built in some of our bad strategies are. And my day job, when I'm not kind of you know doing a podcast about happiness or studying happiness, is actually studying the origins of how people think, the origins of our decision making biases. And I do this by studying a group of monkeys to try to see how they make decisions, which you might think is kind of a weird way to get at how people think. About money, But monkeys don't have all the cultural baggage that we do. They don't have all the experiences we do or, you know, credit card ads in their podcasts and things like that. They're kind of pure. And so if they're showing the same errors that we're showing when they make decisions, that's going to tell us something about our own biases and our own mistakes. It's going to tell us that our mistakes might be built into some interesting extent. And so to test this, what we did was we gave a group of capuchin monkeys. We have this big social colony of capuchin monkeys, like Mm -hmm. a big zoo enclosure of them. We taught them that they could trade little metal washers, like these little tokens, for pieces of food. And the monkeys pick this up surprisingly quickly. In fact, there are lots of different laboratories and zoos that train monkeys to trade stuff. In fact, it's a good way if you're a zoo and somebody drops something into the enclosure, like some kid drops, you know, their their phone or Mm -hmm. something, you can train the monkeys and train primates to sort of hand that thing back. Oh, Yeah. So they kind of get it really quickly. But we were interested in whether they thought about that trading like a human economy, where they really thinking of trading these components in a way that we think about monetary exchange. And so to test that, we didn't just give the monkeys an option to like, give the token over for just one piece of food. We literally put monkeys into a market. So we gave them a little wallet of tokens. They come in for testing. They kind of test on the side of their enclosure so they can kind of do it by themselves and not get disturbed by the other monkeys. But when they walk in, they got a little bag of tokens and they had a chance to trade those tokens with not just one experimenter, but multiple different experimenters who sold different foods at different prices and also different foods at different risk levels. So sometimes when the monkeys paid someone, they'd give the monkey what they kind of promised, but sometimes they'd switch it around a bit, give more, give less. And so we could ask the monkeys about things like their choices. You know, are they trying to maximize their money to get the most food? We could ask them about their risk preferences. Do they show the same risk preferences as humans? And to make a very long empirical story short, what we found is that the monkeys show most of the same biases that humans show. In other words, they tend to be more risk-seeking when they're dealing with losses. So if they're losing out, they kind of get more risky. (laughs) They tend to kind of overweight losses versus gains, which is something that we see in human populations, they kind of just showed a lot of the same biases as people did. And and that tells us that the monkeys are not that different, even though they don't have credit card ads, even though they don't have any of the stuff we have. It tells us that some of the biases we have with money might be more than skin deep. They might be evolved biases, which means they're going to be harder to overcome.
0: We are monkeys. Like, it was easy to we just create yeah. a monkey <laughs> economy
1: yeah, surprisingly easy, which I think you know, is cool. but it also suggests that we might be using older parts of our mind to make these decisions, right? You know, every time you, you know, sign up for a new credit card or fall prey to that sale price, like, you know, you're using parts of your brain that evolved back in the monkey days, back in the days when we shared a common ancestor with the monkeys. and and that means that those biases might be, in some ways, unconscious. It means that those biases might be really hard to overcome. You might need real structures and situational help to overcome those biases.
0: When you introduced money to the monkeys, were they less happy?
1: That's a great question. It's really hard to measure monkey happiness. This is one of the reasons that I kind of stick with human happiness when I'm talking Mm -hmm. about the happiness work. We can measure monkeys' decisions. We can see their biases. We can't really give them a self-report survey to be like, how happy are you? And that's one of the problems with the happiness research. I wish there was like a thermometer for happiness that we could use for people and monkeys, but our way of measuring happiness in humans is through self-report. I ask you, all things considered, how satisfied are you with your life? Or I ask you, you know, in the last seven days, how many of these positive and negative emotions have you experienced? Kind of hard to do that with a capuchin monkey. And so we weren't really able to look at their happiness directly.
0: Were they more stressed out, though?
1: I think we didn't really see much stress. One of the interesting things we saw, which was kind of cool, is that one of the ways the monkeys weren't like humans is that you might think that when you gave the monkeys some tokens that that would interfere with the social structure the monkeys had. So this species of monkeys has a really strict dominance hierarchy. There's like an alpha male. He's like at the head. You know, he gets access to all the the resources. Mm -hmm. He gets access to all the females he wants to mate with and so on. You might think if we made one of the low-ranking monkeys really, Rich, Mm -hmm. like all of a sudden, you know, things would shift. And this was kind of cool because, you know, what we found is that that really wasn't the case. In fact, the low ranking monkeys didn't really take the tokens as much, or they were kind of scared to take the tokens and buy food when any of the high ranking monkeys were around. So what we found is that the monkeys have their own system for who gets access to goods and services. (laughs) And our little token economy that we built in didn't really change that around very much.
0: When you're talking about happiness, what does that actually mean? Because I, I imagine it when you ask people, are you happy, everyone has different criteria.
1: Yeah, so – I mean, there's probably a billion definitions of happiness, Mm -hmm. right, you know, at the outset. But when social scientists are measuring it, they're they're talking usually about two things. They mean this idea of being happy in your life and being happy with your life. So being happy in your life is just your answer to the question, you know, how many positive versus negative emotions you're experiencing. I want to know, you know, how often you experience laughter and joy. And I want to know how, like, less often you experience things like sadness, anger, and so on. We don't want you to have zero negative emotions because that wouldn't be the human experience. Experience, but we want that ratio to look pretty good. That's being happy in your life. Being happy with your life is a separate question. It's about meaning and your satisfaction and your purpose. It's the answer to the question all things considered, how satisfied are you with your life? And it's worth noting that those two measures can dissociate. My dean, who lives in the college here with me where I work at Yale, she and her wife just had a newborn baby. And she's pretty happy with her life. You know, oh my God, the new meaning of having your first child, that's amazing. But in her life, there's dirty diapers, there's like less sleep. Those two things can kind of dissociate. But For a social scientist, if I'm maximizing both of those, if I'm giving you a lot of positive emotion, lessening your negative emotion, and you're saying you're really satisfied and you have meaning in life, I'm thinking you're pretty happy. The problem with both of those is that the way we assess those is that we have to ask you, you know, we don't have a thermometer. It would be great if we did. And sometimes if you look at these self-report surveys, they can feel not like a real scientific instrument. It can feel like a BuzzFeed quiz or something. But in practice, these measurements really are true scientific tools.
0: So we're talking about self-care and the way that it sort of goes towards short-term fixes versus long-term fixes, which I totally get. I just want to get this thing right now and I'll feel so much happier. But when I was reading interviews with you, you talk about like experiences over things. Can you talk about what would actually be self-care?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think this is another spot where we could be spending our money better. We talked about we spend on ourselves when we could spend on other people. We don't realize that we should be using our money to buy time. And oftentimes we spend too much time to get more money. But you've just mentioned two other domains where I think we get it wrong. One is this domain of thinking about material things versus experiences. Mm -hmm. We think buying material things is better some ways because it's gonna last. If I spend my money on a new pair of shoes, that's gonna last, whereas if I go to a concert, that's gonna be over in a couple hours. But it turns out that psychologically, that's kind of a bad thing when it comes to our happiness because of this idea that we get used to stuff. Like when you buy a new phone, it feels like a new phone and it's really exciting at first. But like two weeks later, (laughs) you're just kind of used to all the new features. It's like not that exciting. Whereas an experience, something like a concert or say you go on a vacation, that goes away. But that's kind of good for your happiness. The other thing we know about experience is that they tend to be social. And we know that happy people tend to be more social. You know, feeling lonely is a huge hit on your happiness. And experiences tend to be the kind of thing we do with other people. If you go to a concert or go on a vacation, you often do that with another person. Mm -hmm. And even if you do it by yourself, it's the kind of thing you can talk about. You know, if I go on and on about this concert I went to and how cool it was, that's kind of a reasonably interesting conversation. But if I go on and on about like, oh, my God, I just got these shoes and they're so awesome and I really like the color. Like, (laughs) no one wants to hear that. Like, you sound like (laughs) kind of a jerk if you buy, especially if you're spending on an expensive thing.
0: Except for me and my one friend who talk about sneakers endlessly. But other than that, <laughs>
1: <laughs> you can have these niche people that it works with. But yeah, but but by and large, you know, the experiences tend to be better. We enjoy them more. They have a longer lasting on happiness, and they make us a little bit more social. We also kind of like the anticipation part of the experience purchasing. So if you if you're a sneakerhead and you just ordered a new pair of sneakers, the anticipation isn't really fun. You're just like, well, they arrive already. You know, you pay extra, you know, for the Amazon shipping because you just want them. But it turns out if you're planning a vacation, you kind of don't want to do it that day. There's something really fun, the research shows, about the anticipation part. You know, you talk to people about it, you plan it, you look at cool restaurants, you're getting a happiness hit just waiting for it to show up. And so that's another thing with experiences being better than material purchases. You get the kind of happiness hit before, and then it lasts longer, and then you get these cool stories. And so it's just much better. You know, the advice is... Every time you think you want to buy a material purchase, remember, that's going to give you less of a happiness boost than if you spent that same amount of money on an experience. And so that's kind of one of the misconceptions that we go for these material long lasting things. But that that kind of doesn't really work. Another thing is that we're not so swift about how we spend on our leisure and and how we spend our time on our leisure. Sometimes this isn't about money, but it's about how we spend our time. If you pull people when they're at work and you ask, you, would you rather be at work or would you rather be home? People are like, oh, my God, I would rather be at home. I hate being at work. And if you pull people when they're at home and you say, would you rather be at work? People think, no, 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 I would hate that. Right. But if you actually look at people's happiness level at work versus at home you often find something else. And again, this isn't for like awful, terrible jobs that people hate, but for this standard kind of like job that people are sort of doing something interesting or at least something that gives them flow, mm-hmm. something that's taking up their attention. When you're at work, you're kind of engaged, right? You're doing something, like you're kind of in this flow state. When you're at home, if you're engaging in certain kind of leisure, like plopping down and, you know, scrolling through Netflix, You sometimes often feel apathetic or a little bit bored or a little bit anxious. So we predict that we'd be happier at home than at work, but sometimes we'd be happier at work. And we'd be happier at work because we're engaging in activities that are a little challenging, that give us some flow. And that means that we don't often pick leisure that will make us feel good. We tend, especially when we're feeling burnt out, to gravitate towards leisure that's really, like, passive, that's, like, plop down and watch something But again, the science shows we'd probably be better off if we kind of challenged ourselves, like learn a language, Mm -hmm. pick up a new instrument, even engage in a video game, right? Where you're like doing something and like going up levels or something. Those kinds of activities end up making us happier than this sort of casual plop down, boring leisure. And so I think this is another spot where we spend our money wrong. We get the crazy new TV thinking like, oh, I'm going to have these awesome experiences. but. You might be better off if you bought a new language learning software (laughs) or did something where you're going to challenge yourself.
0: Who are the people that participate in the research? Is it across all ages and races and sexualities and things like that? Or does it change a lot based on who you're talking to?
1: Yeah, I mean, the goal of researchers is really to get a representative sample. And in many cases, they do. But, you know, it's representative and not the way you'd fully hope, right? Like, it'd be fantastic to get every person on the planet to engage in these studies. And, you know, if we had the grant money to do that, I would be totally keen. You know, it tends to be people in Western countries, again, people who are super time famished and working three Amazon warehouse jobs, they're not necessarily going to be having time to do these sorts of polls. And so, Researchers really strive to get a representative sample, but it does skew towards Western individuals. It does skew towards wealthy individuals, and I mean wealthy not in the way that we would typically think about mm-hmm. wealth in the U.S., but wealthy in a worldly sense. Even in the U.S., if you take some of the poorest people, they're way wealthier than some of the poor people around the world. Right. right? And so we're not necessarily getting a full representative sample there. So yeah, researchers try. It's not perfect. Mm-hmm.
0: So can we talk a little bit about this is like maybe off the path we've been on, but can we talk about the lottery and the psychological aspects of it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this is another spot where we get things wrong. Uh Like People predict if I were just to win the lottery, everything would be perfect. And even though I'm a happiness expert, this is a spot where the people who are close to me fall prey to some of these biases. My dad is obsessed with Powerball, and he has these very specific predictions about what he would buy if he ever won Powerball. And he will be happy to tell you, should you ever want you know, a dad to come on a podcast and tell you in gory detail about what he would buy if he won Powerball, my dad would be happy to do this. But the research shows my dad's predictions are wrong. Again, even if you get an enormous windfall of money, the research shows that you're often not as happy as you think and you're often not anticipating problems that are going to come up should you change your amount of money. So if you hit Powerball and you get $850 million dollars, you're going to have a lot of people coming out of the woodwork asking you for money. And you might not have a plan of who gets the money and who doesn't. And those that don't get the money are going to be pissed. You're not going to be able to hang out with your friends in exactly the same way. They might not be able to go to restaurants with you that you can now go to, right? Your identity is going to change. You might have to do things like move or shift around. Moving is one of the third biggest life stressors after a death of a family member or a divorce. All these changes are going to kick in that maybe aren't going to feel so awesome. But none of that is what we're affectively Forecasting what we're predicting when we play the lottery. We just see ourselves big bathtub full of coins or something, (laughs) and we think it's going to be amazing, but the actual thing that we get isn't what we predict. And in fact, there's lots of anecdotal evidence that people who win the lottery sometimes end up first in dire straits, they spend the money Uh wrong, or even if they don't, end up committing suicide, end up losing friends and family members that they care about. Often people will say, This is an awful thing that happened. In fact, one of the lottery winners we profiled on my podcast, it was the worst thing that ever happened to me. Winning like $50 million Mm. was the worst thing that ever happened to him.
0: Well, it's so fast. You get sometimes the luxury of like your money situation changing slowly over time, promotions or investments or whatever, but you're not meant to change your money situation so quickly and immediately. Because you're not prepared. you don't, it, it happens with YouTubers. You get a million bajillion subscribers and then you make a bunch of money and then you completely forget about taxes. Exactly. Because <laughs> you've only ever gotten a refund. You've never ever had to like pay taxes. So then end of the year comes and they're like, okay, we need $40,000 from you in taxes. And oftentimes these young kids are like, what?
1: <laughs> Didn't see that one coming. Yeah. I think, again, this is the sort of more money, more problems, right? When you – YouTuber, and you affectively forecast, you predict how it's going to feel. If you got a million subscribers, you're just thinking, oh my God, success, mm-hmm. money, blah, blah, blah. You're not thinking my tax forms are crazy and my legal forms are crazy. And now I have all these extra demands on my time. I've got to review all these products, and that's going to take time. I'm going to have less time. I'm going to feel more time famished. This success that I have is going to kind of feel a little bit weird for my friends. Mm-hmm. That's going to cause some tension I didn't expect. How am I going to say no to family members who like, ask for some Correct. money? There are all these issues and problems and real interpersonal stressors that come up when you get more money. And that's especially true if you get it fast. But it's even true if you get it gradually. These are not the things we predict. And this is one of the the main problems with money and happiness is that our prediction mechanisms are kind of messed up. When we affectively forecast, we think good things in life will just be good. We often don't see the kind of smaller problems that come up. Mm -hmm. We also think that good things in life will improve our happiness in a very long-lasting way. You know, I get the iPhone. I'm going to be happy for a Mm -hmm. while. Now I'm going to be happy for two days. And we don't realize that the impact is smaller than we think on our happiness. So a good event isn't going to boost our happiness as much as we expect. But these good events are also not going to have a long-lasting effect on our happiness. And that's the kind of bad side. The good side of our effective forecasting, though, is that it's the flip for bad events. I know you think if you have a bad year financially, it's going to destroy your life. Or if you lose a job, Mm -hmm. it's game over, right? But the same is true in reverse. Those bad events don't negatively impact as much of our happiness as we think, and they don't have as long-lasting effect on our happiness as we think. So the guy on my podcast who said it was the worst thing that ever happened to me, it was in my episode, The Unhappy Millionaire, I paired this story with a story of another person who said... It really was one of the best things that happened in my life. I wouldn't change anything. Mm-hmm. And this was someone who was horribly burned in a tragic accident, lost the use of like his arm and legs, lost his job, and had to kind of figure out how to relive life and he was like this was an awesome thing. You know, it changed my life in a positive way. It's not what we predict, but that's cuz our mechanisms for predicting are just really way off.
0: Wow. So, I also think about like people listening who are struggling to pay rent or who who are are figuring out like how to help family members when they don't have a lot of money. So you're saying when they reach a certain point it won't matter like the compounding of it. We had a woman on talking about building wealth and she was saying that it's really personal. There's no metric of once you reach this number you'll be happy. It's like for some people having $5,000 would be the wildest, most life-changing thing versus someone who's like, I need a million dollars to feel safe.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think for those folks, finding ways to prioritize, getting your finances in order, that situation will be one where your happiness is more positively impacted. But I think the other thing to recognize is that Even if you're in that situation where like, oh, my God, $5,000 would completely change my life, which is a lot of people, right? I was talking about the millionaires and the you need your yacht spot to park. You know, those are very, very few of the people who are listening to your podcast. Most people are in the other category, right? But if you're in that category, one thing to recognize is, yeah, getting more money is one path, but it's not the only path. Trying to give yourself a boost of gratitude on a regular basis is another path that can improve your happiness. Just writing down two to five things you're grateful for every night is a significant boost of your happiness that's about as significant as like kind of going up in that salary thing. It's not what we expect, but it's what the data suggests. Making sure that there are ways you have free time. Improving your time affluence versus your wealth affluence, another great way to boost your well-being. Again, a lot of the problem, the the well-being hit we get from not having money is not having enough time. It's dealing with negative emotions, finding strategies to navigate your negative emotions. If you're stressed about money, anxious about money, getting more money will solve that, but also finding ways to deal with those emotions. Because again, even when you get more money, it's not like the anxiety and the stress are fully going to go away. It's going to lock onto some other thing.
0: So can we talk a little bit about social media because sometimes I'll be feeling completely fine and then I'll go on Instagram and I'll see someone has posted about having something and then I feel awful for the rest of the day. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you're not alone. You know, social media is not the greatest thing for our happiness. I think it could be. I mean, I think one thing we forget is that social media is a tool. We could use it in lots of ways. We could use it to, you know, I don't know, post things we're grateful for mm-hmm. or do that negative visualization about how lucky we are, right? But we tend not to use social media like that. We tend to use social media in a way that makes us feel less grateful, more cravy. Our little craving mechanisms get activated anytime we see stuff. So if we see someone with the nicer sneakers than us or someone with a nicer house or a better vacation, we tend to want that. And so I think one strategy for dealing with social media is to Take a moment to mindfully notice about how it's making you feel. If it's kind of making you all crazy, that might be something to sort of think about. I've recognized this with my own social media use and other things too. You know, I'm here at Yale University, which is nearby to New York, kind of pre-COVID, I would often go to New York and sort of walk around and I watch myself even just being around other people and getting like cravier. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, my shoes aren't as cool, or like, oh man, I wish I had this stuff. And I was like, wait a minute, like two hours ago when I was in New Haven, I wasn't thinking any of this stuff but now like mm-hmm. my life isn't good enough. What? So I think it's worth watching the kinds of things that activate your social comparison. And that's the time you need to feed your brain a better comparison, one that's going to improve your well-being. Because yeah, those people in New York, you know, with the fancy shoes might have it better than me, but like most of the people on the planet don't, right? Yeah, yeah, you know, there yeah. are a lot of people who are doing worse and maybe me in the past didn't, right? You know, that's that moment of negative visualization of like, oh, you know, if I think back to where I was financially, I'm in a much better place now. And so, negative visualization can be incredibly powerful. We can use our brains to lock into things that will make us feel grateful and maybe even motivate us, you know, to, again, if we have a little spare money, use it to help someone else, use it to help someone in need, you know, and that is also going to give back to our happiness in the ways we've talked about.
0: Well, thank you so much for being here, Lori. Where can people find out more about you
1: and your work? If you want to hear more about how you can become happier (laughs) through your money, I really encourage you to check out the Happiness Lab podcast. And if you want to really dig in and learn more, we have a version of the class that I teach my Yale students that's available for free on Coursera.org. It's called The Science of Wellbeing, and it's all the scientific tips that you can use to feel happier in money and in life more generally.
0: Time affluence. Time famine. Those are terms I'm going to take into account with all of my work from now on. It's not if money makes you happier, because it does, but it's about how much time you've saved, thinking of it as like a temporal number. A former guest on this show named Vicky Robin taught me to think about work in terms of the money per hour. Is this worth 12 hours of my finite existence? Measure money in terms of time, and you will be better able to track your happiness there will always be more money, but there's never going to be more time. Welcome to Dear Gabby, the segment at the end of the show where I read your emails and reviews on Apple Podcasts and also listen to your voice memos and voicemails. You can reach me at 877-474-4040. Please call in. I love hearing your soothing, beautiful voices. And you can also email me at gabbyisbadwithmoney at gmail.com. You also send some very, very thought-provoking emails, so I appreciate all of them. You've given me a lot of ideas for next season. So please, please, please write and call in. Here's an email from Anonymous. Hi, Gabby. Looks like you've left Twitter. Good for you. So sending this via email. I have left Twitter. I had to for my mental health. Probably other people's mental health as well. Re-episode intro to investing from April 21st. Now that I'm comfortable money-wise, I give a chunk of money away. I got a recent 10% raise, literally because I found out about gender pay inequity at work. But that's another story, LOL. That is another story. Please write that story in. And I decided to give away most of that raise. About half goes to recurring donations, mostly 501c3s, which I always check Charity Navigator first. That's a good, actually, yes, that website, Charity Navigator, is a great recommendation. I don't own a home or have kids, so I will likely never itemize, so tax deductible doesn't matter. This person says, I'm happy to send my list if that would help anyone who feels overwhelmed. So yes, please send your list. The other half goes to random direct giving like you mentioned. GoFundMes, Venmo, cash for houseless people in our area. I track that via a spreadsheet, both so I don't go over the amount, but also to make sure I donate what I allocated. And then I I really like this part. I'm a leftist, so I always will never be a boss or a landlord. Feel free to read this on air, but don't use my name. Thanks, and great podcast as always, blank. Okay, now we have a voicemail from Casey.
2: Hi, Gabby. So my question is about ethical investing. How? (laughs) How do you do that? Please help. I know. I'm one of those like one in a million lottery stories where I had an estranged relative die and leave me quite a bit of money. Spooky. And as much as I feel the shame and regret of having money that I didn't earn – from somebody I didn't really know. I also have shame and regret that that money was built on very yucky stuff, like investments in big oil companies and Amazon and all the rest. So I'm trying to find out what I can do with this money Mm -hmm. and try to invest it in something that would be like sustainable energies or like social responsibility things. Um, I just don't really know where to start. And the money's being managed by, like, a gross Wall Street bro. And if I told him, like, I want to invest in renewable energies, I just feel like I'm going to be judged. So I kind of need support and help. How do I do it? Where do I go? Thanks. Bye.
0: Okay. Well, first of all, I can't believe you live in a real-life Scooby-Doo episode (laughs) where some relative living in, I assume, a castle in Transylvania left you money when they died. Anyway... Yeah, okay. So we did an episode season one with a woman named Sally Krawcheck. She has a company called Elevest, which is specifically designed to help women with investing. I think that is your first stop so that you don't have to work with a finance bro who will make judgy eyes at you. You can also listen to our episode we just did with Sarah Glacis. There are tons of women's investing groups that you can meet up with and share this dilemma with and they will point you in the right direction and help you. What you're talking about in terms of ethical investing is most often referred to as impact investing, which basically means using the money that you have to invest in, as you said, renewable resources or just being like aware of where it's invested. One thing that really shook me to my core was the teachers in Parkland at um, Stoneman Douglas after the shooting that happened there realized that their pensions were invested in a gun company or uh I think they were invested in the NRA, something to do with guns. And that really highlighted for me the need to check on where your money is invested. So yes, so I think what you're looking for is possibly a book on impact investing or when you're Googling what to do with the money or what to look for, the term is impact investing. And so I hope that's helpful. But yeah, I mean, it's tough obviously to operate within a capitalist framework that requires all of this strange, mysterious stuff that seems to be run by the worst people in the world. So if you feel strongly about where that money should go based on you know, quote-unquote reparations for where it came from, do not feel judged. Do not feel guilty. This is not something strange that you're doing. This is something that a lot of people do, and that is important to a lot of people and you are within your rights to pull that money and put it somewhere else and you are within your rights to ask for that money to go in a place that makes you feel good and makes you feel like it's doing something productive and good for the world. So you're not weird and if anybody judges you for that, you should be judging them. Done.